All right, this morning, I didn't know what I was going to do for sure today, but once I noticed who people are not here for the first hour, I knew that I couldn't do what I wanted to do because it was going to require both hours. So uh, in the first hour, what we decided to do was go back to Law and Gospel. And since we did that in the first hour, then we're just going to continue that in the second hour so that we can hopefully try to finish this. We are in thesis number seven. If you'd missed this morning, you definitely need to go back and listen to that. Um, I, I can only try to re- review briefly, uh, but it may be, again, I, I've said this before already in the study, that was one of the most important. Uh, today was one of the most, maybe the most important up to, the, uh, up to this point now, because we did a very good job trying to understand the connection and distinction between justification and sanctification, which the evangelical church has completely destroyed and basically preach nothing more than Catholicism. This morning was kind of a culmination of what started a couple of years ago when I preached a sermon trying to lay the foundation for a lot of this, where I talked about justification and sanctification, uh, how close should we link them together or how far should we make them separate. And what I tried to, to demonstrate is that Christians, love, if, if you're stopped in a street corner and asked, okay, What do you believe about justification and sanctification? The go-to answer of evangelicals is justification and sanctification are different. They're separate. And then turn right around and prove that you don't mean that at all and that all you're saying is the same thing Catholics are saying. Because what we say is, no, justification is different than, uh, than sanctification because justification is a legal declaration and where we are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ. And then five seconds later, we say that sanctification is where we are made righteous and if we don't demonstrate sanctification and be made righteous enough, then we were never justified. Now, the minute you do that, you just declare that justification is not an imputed righteousness. You just declare that it is an infused righteousness that makes you sanctified. If you connect justification and sanctification and you say that, you've destroyed it. Because how do we define justification? I've already said it's a legal declaration where we are declared to be just, even though we're not just, by an imputed righteousness. Sanctification we define as what? A process which we become more righteous. Well, if you connect justification to sanctification, then justification is the thing that leads to sanctification. It can only lead to it if it's a imputed righteousness, that or an infused righteousness. Imputed does not make me righteous, it just declares me to be righteous. So then it becomes a major problem. You've destroyed the entire Protestant Reformation. And every church in this this country who claims that they, they are not Catholic teach Catholicism. And I'm so tired of it. Just go back to the Catholic Church because it's the same thing. So we spent all an hour this morning trying to figure this out. So let I'll go through this quickly. Sarah, you got all your notes because I'm going to count that someone has them written down. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Because right, I'm going to hopefully I remember everything. All right. Here we go. You see, now I always do all this with no notes. Right. It's all up here. Sometimes I remember it. Sometimes I don't. Okay. Here we go. Everybody ready? All right. Justification. Sanctification. How are they connected? Right? First of all, justification, if they're, and, and, and in fact, they're separate, but the correlation between the two is this. Justification provides the motivation for sanctification. And how does it provide the motivation? 
Because Romans 12.1 says it's because of the mercies of God that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Because, because in justification, what happens? It's all God's mercy, right? It's all God's mercy. I don't do anything in justification. It's a monergistic work, right? God declares me to be just. What am I still? Not just. He declares me to be righteous. What am I still? Not righteous. He declares me to be holy. What am I? Sinner. Right? He declares that. Does he declare it based on what I will do, can do, should do, may do, hope to do? No, it's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, because of that mercy, then there should be some motivation to seek to live out in practice what is true positionally. Will I ever do it anywhere close to the way I'm I'm supposed to? Never. Will I constantly show that I'm a sinner? Every single day. All right? There's the first way. What is the second connection between... Or, and I, I got to be careful not to merge those together. But what is the correlation between justification and sanctification? What's the second? Justification is an absolute guarantee of a completed sanctification and glorification. Now you got to be very careful how you understand that. We are not talking about that has any guarantee for a practical practical sanctification. Because if I make it a guarantee of a practical sanctification, I've just turned justification into what? An infused righteousness. It's a guarantee of a completed sanctification and glorification. For those he justifies, he will glorifies. That's Romans chapter 8. Meaning that that, and that in one sense, what do we what in one sense, what can we dogmatically assert? Justification is a monergistic work. Sanctification is a monergistic work as far as the future sanctification. We have nothing. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, if you've been justified, you will be glorified. Therefore, you will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ and it will be done. That's monergistic in that way. Was there a third one? Those are the two main. I want to make sure we have those two down. All right? Now, this leads to the controversy, which will everyone will lose their mind. If you tell any Christian who doesn't go to this church what I'm about to say, they will lose their minds. But that's because they're Catholics. And we're not Catholics, and I have no desire to be a Catholic. And if I desire to be a Catholic, I'm not going to pretend to be a Catholic by sitting in a non-Catholic church. All right? But here's the thing. Justification does not produce and is not a guarantee of practical sanctification. And if you say that, you are a Catholic, there's no way around it. Because what's the only way to guarantee, the only way to say that? The only way to say that is you have to turn justification into what? An infused righteousness. Right? Let me make it very clear. Can an imputed righteousness produce a practical righteousness? No. Everyone hear that. Can an imputed righteousness produce a practical righteousness? No. If you're saying yes, you don't understand imputation. Imputation is what? It's a legal declaration. Imputation is what? Outside of me. Imputation is not inside of me. I am declaring someone to be righteous who is obviously not. Right? God is saying Bobby is righteous, holy, and, not, and it has nothing, it, it doesn't change Bobby in any way, shape, or form. 
it doesn't, ch- it doesn't change anything. Now, that justification hopefully provides a motivation, right? Because Bobby can be like, wow, I don't deserve that. Wow, that's, that's unbelievable, right? And then hopefully, based off that mercy, you will be motivated. But it doesn't give you some supernatural, anything. It's imputed, right? Now, people don't like to hear that. Because why? We're law-based. So immediately, what do we want to do? Christians say this in every church in Abilene, okay? I've, I've heard it in a million sermons. Your justification is proved by your sanctification. Not enough sanctification? You're not justified. The minute you say that, what is the basis of your justification? Your works. And you say, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not saying you're saved by your works. I'm saying your works prove you're saved. If the works prove that I'm saved, then what is it required for me to be saved? Works. <laughs> There's, you're just playing semantics. We've got to have these... Justification and sanctification are what? Completely separate. Sanctification is not guaranteed in this life. Future one is. Future one is. We've got to make sure we have that down. I know that that's like blows everyone's mind, but it's just, if you'll study Catholicism and you talk to the average evangelical, you're like, you're just a Catholic. You're just a Catholic. And my eyes was opened by going to a Catholic university learning Catholic theology. I'm like, this... And then it was the Catholic saying... You guys are better Catholics than we are. And I'm like, no. And I'm like, look at your teaching. Look at your, you're teaching the same thing. How can you deny that? You're all like, grace alone, faith alone. Well, but if you don't do this and this and this and this and this, you're never saved. <laughs> well, how are you going to do this and this and this unless you receive an, an infused righteousness? And I'm like, stop saying this stuff. You know, it's imputed. You don't believe it's imputed. You don't believe it's imputed. And then I'm like, okay, well, well, maybe you're right. Maybe. Okay, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm like, what do I do? Do I just go back to Roman Catholicism? Because that's what we teach. So then you have to figure this out. So I want to make sure we understand these are completely different things. Everybody got that? All right, now, the reason we are having this conversation is we're in thesis number seven. That, that, I, I already reviewed way mo- much more than I wanted to, but we've got to make sure everybody in the church has that down. All right, thesis number seven was this. The word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is what? Preach first, then the law. And what happens when we preach the gospel first, then the law? Very good. Yeah, the gospel is turned into a solution for something it was never intended to fix. Next. Sanctification first and then justification. That's one we're talking about. When you preach sanctification first, then justification. How does the church preach sanctification first, then justification? When we run around telling the world, you got to do this, you got to do this, we want, we want to impose Christian morality upon the world. You're trying to impose sanctification on an unregenerate heart. What always goes first? Justification. After someone's justified, then what do you teach? Then you teach them to obey. What's the motivation for that obedience? God's mercy. There you go. Do you see how that works? Right? When we preach faith first, then repentance. And then when we preach good works first, and then grace. All right? We've looked at the first two. We've talked about uh, 
uh, when we preached gospel prior to law, and then we spent, we've, we've spent now most of today looking at the second perversion, uh, which is sanctification of life is preached before justification. All right, and then the member of the book refers to the confounding of justification and sanctification as one of the most horrific errors. One of the most horrific errors is when you mess up justification and sanctification. You confound them, you merge them. You gotta keep them separate. You gotta keep them separate. And why are we keeping them separate? If we merge justification and sanctification, what gets destroyed? Justification by imputed righteousness. If you merge them, you're teaching justification by an infused righteousness. And that's against the entire Protestant Reformation. All right, everybody got that? Here is the third perversion, or the third wrong way. When we preach first law, okay, the third perversion of the, of the true sequence. First law, then gospel occurs when faith is preached first and repentance next. So when we preach faith first and then repentance, we've messed up the order. When we preach faith first and then repentance, why does that mess up the order? Right, you're putting gospel before law, but in this particular case, they want us to understand faith before repentance. This is what happens. If you wish to believe in Christ, you must become sick. For Christ is a physician. Only for those who are sick. He came to seek and save the lost. Therefore, you must first become lost and condemned sinner. He is the good shepherd who goes in search of the lost sheep. Therefore, you must first realize that you are lost. We must always keep that first. Repent, uh, re- repent first, right? What, what, when we say repent first, what are we preaching? We're preaching the law, right? We're preaching the law. And when I say repent, what am I telling you to repent from? I'm telling you to change your mind about sin. You're, you are to recognize that you are a sinner. You are to recognize what is sinful. That shows you what? That you are sick. That shows that you are condemned. Then, after I've preached repentance, then we call, we call preach what? Faith. Right? Faith. Because why? I am saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. All right, so I preach the repentance to show sin, then we preach faith. We do not preach faith first, then repentance. Everybody understand that? If we preach faith first, then repentance, what do we do to faith? We're calling people to believe in God as a solution to something other than our sin. All right, that's why we have to preach repentance first. Everybody understand that? So many times in the church, we want to present Jesus as a solution to every little problem. He's not there to fix all all the things that we... And remember, this is an ongoing problem in the church. This is an ongoing problem, and I'm so sick and tired of hearing it. We preach Jesus as the solution to all of these issues, all right? That he doesn't come to fix. And I'll just, we've talked about it in the first hour, but I'll mention it again here because this point, let me just give you an example, all right? Let's say we can just mention a number of sins. We'll start with one. We'll go with the sin of homosexuality, right? How does the the church preaches almost the sin of homosexuality? Believe in Jesus. You won't have that problem anymore. 
That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. That is utterly absurd. That is, that is foolish. That is, that is insane. That, to me, is nothing different than charismatic saying that healing is guaranteed. You know why I know it's absurd? Again, I talked about this morning. You can have two teenagers on this side of the church and two teenagers on this side of the church. And this side of the church, the two teenagers, their sin is homosexuality, same-sex attraction, right? This side is just a boy and a girl, and their, their sin is lust and premarital sex or whatever. Now, guess what? Both, all four get saved. We expect these two, same-sex attraction, supposed to be magically fixed. And then we say, then go get married and you'll have, you know, a house with a white picket fence, two dogs, three kids, and everything's going to be wonderful. Right? We expect that because it's just supposed to go away. But over here, those kids get saved. Does their, sin, does their sinful desires magically go away? No, they're sneaking around, premarital sex, whatever, sin, 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 sin. Why, why do we expect theirs to go away? And if you expect that homosexuals are supposed to just magically go away, how come you still sin? Does all of your desires go away? So we preach Jesus as a solution to what? To, 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 that he didn't come to save us from our sins in a sense of forgiving us and declaring us righteous. We teach that he comes to save us from our sins by what? changing us from being sinful. But that's not the way it works. The church has been preaching that forever. How many times you hear this in a church? If anyone's in Christ, new creature. Old things passed away. And everyone in the church says amen to that while they walk out and get in the car and act what? Just like the old self. Well, why are you acting like the old self if the old is gone? How can the old be gone? And it, all it does is hang out with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to declare us righteous, even though we are not better. Because what do we remain after salvation? Do we we maintain the old nature? The minute you say you remain the old nature, you immediately know that all things have not become new. Right? That's just logic. So it's there. So we sometimes present Jesus as that he's come to make everyone better. He's come to take away our sinful desires, make us a better wife, make us a better husband, make us all of this stuff. And we're like, no, he came to save us from our sins. And he saved us from our sins, not by making us sinless, but declaring us righteous, even though we are not. And we've destroyed that. So I do preach your sin. You are to acknowledge that sin. Change your mind in what way? That I now know that's a sin. That's a sin. I acknowledge it as a sin and I turn to Christ because he's the only solution for that sin. And the solution is I don't turn to Christ so he'll give me the power so I will stop doing it. I turn to Christ so he will give me imputed righteousness so I will not be condemned by it or for it. That is a radically different approach. All right, then last, the fourth perversion occurs when good works are preached first, then grace. When we preach good works, then grace. Now, this one we play a lot of games with. You know the scripture, everybody can go to it, Ephesians 2. Everybody knows this one. 
Go to Ephesians 2. Everyone knows this one. Talk about a passage that's caused so much trouble in the history of the church, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Everybody there? All my pages just decided to move on me. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Remember, we want to make it very clear that not of yourselves is a reference to what? The grace and the faith. All right, make sure we understand that. Most churches don't believe it's reference to the faith, all right? For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. That faith is not yours. God has to grant you the faith. It is the gift of God. And this is very important, right? Because we believe that the call, this is very important, the call to repent and the call to believe are both law. That's a law because it's a command. Now, if, you're, if you believe that you believe on your own, then you are saved by your obedience to the command to believe, which would turn it into a workspace system. The reform answer is what? Yes, they are commands, they are law. And what God demands, he provides. He provides the repentance, he provides the faith. Our, my repentance is not me, and my faith is not me. It's given to me by God. That's the only way to get around that, or, or you end up with a workspace system. All right. So, that, so in a roundabout way, when, uh, I would not say that an Arminian or a semi-Pelagian is not saved, but they get very dangerous to a workspace system because re- repent and believe is a law, it's a command. He commands us to repent and believe, right? We, they try to say that it's an invitation, it's not a command, but it's stated as a command. Repent and believe. And if I say that I can do that based off just my own will and my own nature, then I'm, ob- I'm being saved by my obedience to a command. And if I'm saved by my obedience to a command, then guess what I'm saved by? Works. Now, I won't claim that they're lost, but I'm just saying that they're very close to turning a system of grace into a system of works, where we would say, no, you are to, you are to obey those commands. And God is going to grant you the obedience of those because he's going to give you the faith and the repentance and he's going to give those that he chose before the foundations of the world. All right. Now, uh, verse 9, not of works. See why it's not of works? Why is it not of works? Because the grace and the faith is not of yourselves. If either one of those was of ourselves, then it would be by works. And if any one of those was by ourselves, guess what? We can boast. I can't boast because it's not my faith, it's not my repentance. Now, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath uh, before ordained that we should walk in them. Now there is the works. Grace first, then the works. We are saved and we are called to these works. Are we not called to them? Yes, we are called to obey them. Do we? No, we fall short of them what? Every single day, 24 hours, 7 days a week. In fact, in some cases, whatever works that we do do, we may do them externally, but still be falling short internally, right? Which then would still cause us all kinds of problems, all right? So far, so good. Go to Titus chapter 2. 
What's the, what's the, what's the main thing? To, the main thing to do with Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, just make sure we just drive this point home. The main thing is what, what most people do with Ephesians 2, 8, and 10 is they read that and they turn, and this is exactly what they do. They destroy, this is where they destroy justification and sanctification. Because they'll say, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God that any man should boast. Then immediately they get to verse 10, and what do they do with verse 10? How do you know you're saved? By your works. Your works prove your justification. And if the works prove my justification, then justification is no longer by what? Imputed righteousness. It's by an infused righteousness. And so therefore you've just destroyed it. I am to, I, 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 no one is denying that we're not called to work. No one is not called, no one is denying that. You just can't make it the basis because the minute you say that proves you're saved, that means without it you're not saved. Therefore, it's a works-based system. And not only that, how, what, if, if we're honest, if my works prove that I'm saved, then what I'm saying is my, that my obedience to the law proves that I'm saved. What does the law demand to prove that I'm saved? perfection, so therefore, even if I played that little game, your works would constantly prove what? That you're not. And anyone who says that I can look to my works to prove that I'm saved, they're delusional. They've lost their mind. I've been there. Other people are there. Because they think that their works are good enough to prove it. You're out of your mind. They, they can never prove it. They can never prove it because they would be, have to require to be what? Perfect. How can your in... It's so weird what people believe. My imperfect obedience proves my perfect salvation. How can your imperfect work prove an imputed righteousness? First of all, your works can't prove an imputed righteousness because what proves an imputed righteousness? Not your works. Yeah, well, Luther, definitely, this is what drove Luther crazy. Because he was like, I, I confess, and I try, and I sin, 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 and I sin. Like, there's got to be a solution. And they're like, Luther, and so, and of course, all the Catholics were playing the same game that the evangelicals play. We pretend somehow that our works are good enough. And he was like, this is not working. And he would go to confession, leave, turn right back, go to confession until they were like, Go away. You're making a big deal out of this. And he's like, what do you mean I'm making a big deal out of this? Be ye holy as I am holy. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So he, he could not. And so finally he realized that just lives by faith. Meaning that I live by faith and by faith I am declared to be Righteous, so I live the Christian life, and one sense, I'm always obedient to all the works of God in my position. In my position, I am sanctified. And practice, well, I'm far from it. All right, so just make sure that people do that weird thing with Ephesians. All right, Titus 2. Oh, we're going to run out of time. Titus 2. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. How does the grace of God teach us those things? Now, we, they, they, once again, we're, ha- we're back to justification and sanctification. 
How does God's grace teach us to avoid these things? How does it inherently teach that? His grace was demonstrated in saving me and declaring me righteous. Look at all of those things. Does any of that sound like you? Ungodliness? Worldly lust? Does any of that sound like you? Yes, that sounds like everyone, right? God's grace saved me from that because God graciously saved me from the condemnation of that. That should motivate me and teach me to do what? To try not to live according to it or in it. Now, am I going to find myself constantly living in it and according to it? Yes. So is my salvation proved by my denying those things or avoiding those things? No. My salvation is dependent upon what? An imputed righteousness. It does, it should teach me to, why does it teach me to do so? Christ died as a result of those sins, yes? Demonstrating that it is sinful. In salvation, what happens? Repentance. I change my mind. Now I believe ungodliness and worldly lust is what? A sin. Now, am I going to avoid it perfectly? No way. If you make that as the proof of one's salvation, I'm sorry, nobody is saved. Nobody's going to make it. Does that make sense? All right, now, we got one long paragraph here. All right? Now, if I read everything in this book, guess what, though? When they, they go right back, they follow the same trap everyone else falls. They do such a good job making sure we understand justification and sanctification are different and fall right back into the book, demonstrating that somehow sanctification proves justified, which is... You know, it is true. Sanctification will prove that I'm justified in one way. Glorification, the ultimate uh, sanctification, will prove I'm justified because justification is the guarantee of glorification. But not practical sanctification. That's just ridiculous and destroys everything. All right, but here's what they say. Romans contains the Christian doctrine in its entirety. In the first three chapters, we find the sharpest preaching of the law. This is followed towards the end of the third chapter and in chapters four and five by the doctrine, or I'm sorry, it is, this is followed towards the end of the third chapter and in chapter four and five by the doctrine of justification. Nothing but that. So we get law at the beginning of, of Romans and then we get justification, right? Does that make sense? Beginning at chapter six, the apostle treats nothing else than sanctification. Here we have a true pattern of the correct sequence. First, the law, threatening men with the wrath of God. Next, the gospel, announcing the comforting promises of God. This is followed by instruction regarding the things we are to do after we have become new men. Now, I got no problem saying that this gives me instruction of what I to do. And if you say I've become a new man, you've got to define what you mean by that. Am I new practically? No, I'm new positionally. So as long as you define what you mean by new man, I'm willing to go with that phrase. But I'm by no means going with that phrase when it comes to practical because we're not. All right. Uh, It says here, okay. The prophets too, when they wished to convert people, began by preaching the law to them. When the chastenings of the Lord had taken effect, they comforted the poor sinners. As to the apostles, no sooner had their hearers shown that they were alarmed uh, than they then they seem to know nothing else to do for them but to comfort them and to pronounce absolution to them. Not until they had been done, 
Not until they had been done would they say to their people, now you must show your gratitude towards God. Now, please note, say not until they had found themselves completely broken over their sin, right? Not until they had been comforted by the gospel. Then only after that, he, they would say, um, now you must show your gratitude towards God. I got no problem saying as a Christian, we should show our gratitude to God. There's no problem with that. I got no, what, because my, what should motivate me? God's mercy should produce gratitude, right? We should have gratitude. I, everyone agrees with that. There's no, there's no problem there. They did not issue orders. They did not threaten when their orders were disregarded, but they pleaded and besought their hearers by the mercy of God to act like Christians. Did you hear that? This is very important. They did not issue orders. They did not threaten when their orders were disregarded, but they pleaded and besought their hearers by the mercy of God to act like Christians. That's all we can do with someone who's, who's saved is to beg them to act like a Christian based off what? The mercy of God. In the modern evangelical church, we don't tell them to behave because of God's mercy. What do we tell them? If you don't do it, you're probably not saved which is the whole problem because that immediately turns what justification into what? An infused righteousness. And it doesn't work that way. In, in 1 Corinthians, does Paul say, hey, you're not saved? Calls them brethren over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then what does he say in 1 Corinthians 3? Everybody look at it. Y'all should know this by heart. 1 Corinthians 3. He definitely says they're sinners. Yeah, but what is what is he what does he call? Notice the, the two the two compare contrast the two things. What does he say negatively about them in First Corinthians three? Call, well, you look at it. What does he say about them? Oh, the negatives. Okay, I'm not even addressing you as spiritual. He calls them infants, carnal, babes. He talks about all their sin. They're unable to handle the, the meat of God's word, right? I mean, he gives them all kinds of stuff, right? Negative, 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 negative. But does he once say they're not saved? Does he even call their salvation into question? No. Now, that's amazing to me, right? Because he should have pulled out the MacArthur test. Yeah, we're. Yeah, I mean, he, he he speaks of them as believers, right? So he should have pulled out the MacArthur test and said, "Hey, pass this test, or you're not saved." Well, they obviously would have failed the test, correct? So what were they demonstrating? Justification, but what was not being demonstrated? Oh, how is that possible? How is it possible? Because justification and sanctification are what? Separate. Or separate. So what did they need to hear? Based on God's mercy, they should do what? Live like Christians. Does he basically challenge them to live like Christians over and over and over and over and over again? The greatest threat they get is possibly church discipline is threatened, right? Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation. He talks about works, right? But the works result in what? 
a loss of reward, but they will themselves be saved even though a trial by fire, right? He gives them more assurance of salvation than he does anything. Now, I love this. So let me read this again. They did not issue orders. They did not threaten when their orders were disregarded, but they pleaded and besought their hearers by the mercy of God to act like Christians. This is genuine sanctification. Genuine sanctification is where we are motivated by the mercies of God to act like a Christian. Now it should follow what? Justification. Justification always comes first because I don't have God's mercy. I, I can't, I'm not motivated by anything because I haven't received it. That's why Paul could say the things I want to do, I don't, the things I don't want to do because there is a want to and there's a not want to because of God's mercy. We're motivated to do the right thing, but we fall short. So they're, they're, they're willing to acknowledge that the sanctification should be based off that. They're like, this is genuine sanctification, which follows upon justification. This is genuine uh, justification, which comes after repentance. Making sure we have the right order. All right? Now, we're out of time, so let's make sure we get this today. All right? We didn't get as far. Well, we finished that thesis, so that thesis is done. So we did accomplish something. Thesis 7 is done. I'm, just, I'm not following so much the book, because I want to make sure we understand this. So... As, as a group, let's make sure everyone understands this, all right? What is justification? A legal declaration whereby God declares a sinner righteous on the base... Uh, who is not... We need to add that phrase. Who is not on the basis of an imputed righteousness. If you don't say those words... I'm going to drive you to our family Catholic church or Sacred Heart and drop you off, okay? And just say, here's a new member, because they're a better Catholic than they are a Baptist, okay? What is justification? A legal declaration whereby God declares a sinner to be just, even though they're still a sinner, on the basis of imputed righteousness, and then let's throw in that beautiful word, Alone. What is sanctification? A process in which we become more righteous practically, but there is also a sanctification that is positionally, and there's also a sanctification that is eternally. All right? So make sure in sanctification we have to understand this. In Christ, I have been when when I was when was I initially sanctified? Eternity passed when God elected me. He set me apart from everyone else, right? I am sanctified presently in Christ Jesus. Positionally, I am perfectly sanctified, right? And someone says your justification will sanctify you. It's true. And my position, how sanctified am I? Perfect. And my position, how much do I obey? Positionally, I obey everything perfectly. In my position, I'm perfect. I obey. I don't do one thing wrong positionally. I am sanctified. And I will be sanctified. So think about this. In this sense, all of that sanctification, that's the monergistic sanctification. The initial one, did I have anything to do with it? 
Positionally, do I have anything to do with it? The eternal one. All monergistic. In practice. In practice. Okay? How does it work? Justification motive gives me a motivation for, right? Gives me a motivation for. And what else does it do? The connection between justification and sanctification. There, there was a second one. It, it provides the guarantee for the future. But what does it not do? Justification does not in any way, shape, or form produce or lead to a practical sanctification because the minute I say that, what do I turn justification into? An infused righteousness. Does imputed, I mean, make sure everyone understands this. Does imputed produce a practical righteousness? No. Everybody understand it. Can everyone say that? Imputed does not produce practical righteousness. How can I be so dogmatic about that? No, because it's, it defines the, it destroys the very definition of imputed, right? Okay, it's imputed, right? Imputed means what? Just a credited account, right? If LeBron James calls me right now and says, I impute unto Trevor, the greatest, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. I mean, that is true. But I mean, in practice though, not so much. Right? Will I ever be? No. Does him declaring me to be that, accrediting to my account the greatest basketball player of all time, does it make me in any way, does it increase my basketball skills? Does it make me better? No. It doesn't do anything. I may be very grateful. Go, well, LeBron, that was super nice of you. I didn't even know you knew I existed. Thank you so very much. Right? I, I may try to do something nice for LeBron just because I'm grateful for that declaration, but it's not going to change anything in me. Right? Remember, we've talked about this a hundred different ways. If, if, my, if, if someone's math score is imputed to me, does it make me a better math student? No, it does not. I'm still the same math student. So how can you test an imputed righteousness? You can't test whom? The one who it was imputed to. Why can you not test me? Because I, I'm going to fail the test. So where do you have to take the test? To the one who imputed it. And so where do you take your test? To Christ. So I can take MacArthur's book and say, you're right, MacArthur. You're absolutely right. If I'm justified, I will be sanctified. You're absolutely right. And I am sanctified perfectly in Christ positionally. I will be. And you're absolutely right. I, salvation does require works. Absolutely does. In fact, I'm going to be judged according to my works. You're absolutely right. Well, guess what, MacArthur? You're pointing at the wrong person. Because if you're going to judge my works, you've got to judge the works of Christ who have been imputed to me. And so his works are now my works. So when it says I'm going to be judged according to my works, God can judge my works, right? Because what works will he see? The works of his son. And guess how perfect they are? Perfect. Or some, like MacArthur, would teach, no, you know why we're going to be judged according to our works? Because our works will prove if we're saved. Do you know how utterly ridiculous that is? First of all, how can my works prove that I'm saved? 
What, what, what kind of works would be required to prove that I'm saved? Perfect. Number two, if you say that God's going to judge my works and my works are going to prove that I'm saved, then what am I saved by? My works. Which destroys justification. So does everybody understand the clear distinction here? Almost every church in the Abilene, Texas area will say justification produces sanctification. And they're talking about which kind of sanctification? Practical. And the minute they say that, what did they just do to justification? They just destroyed it. Now are teaching an infused one and basically are teaching Roman Catholicism. How does the Roman Catholic system work? Justification, sanctification, or what? And it's all a, all of it is a process. Where does the process begin? I take the little baby, right? Water, name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, make the sign of the cross, right? 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 Here we go. This baby's sin, oh, original sin has been, he's been infused with righteousness. Starts the process. Starts the process. Run, 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 Forrest, run, right? Okay, going to start the process, right? Now, how does it work? What, what's there to help him along? Well, hopefully he's got godparents, right? Hopefully, hopefully. Usually they're garbage, okay, but okay. I don't even know why they're standing there half the time. You're like, you know, he's in the mafia. Why is he the godparent? Okay, but you get the idea, okay? All right, he's the godparent. And then what else do you have? The church. I mean, you can't, you're not getting it without the church, right? Because the church is to give you what? Sacraments, which are means of grace. And some of those sacraments are everything from Lord's Supper. Obviously, baptism just gave grace, right? Marriage, right? All of this. You've got all of seven, uh, seven sacraments to get you all the way through, right? You get you all the way through. Now, anywhere in the process, what can happen? What are they going to be looking for? Your works. Uh-oh, you're going to be looking at your works, right? Okay, and at any point, your works could demonstrate that something's wrong. Because if you commit a mortal sin, you're no longer in a state of grace. So now you've got to get back in a state of grace. Venial sins, you're good, right? They weaken, they weaken, but you're good. You can keep running, right? But boom, then, then man, I'm, as long as I can get to, so what's the goal? Get to death and a state of grace and they help you out maybe at the very end with last rites right maybe we can we can get you in and then you get to purgatory Woo! made it to purgatory i'm really tired right okay and then in purgatory all your sins are purged so now you can get to heaven and then maybe you can earn an indulgence and other things to get you out of it that and people say that's the most ridiculous thing and we mock it i admire it because at least it's trying to be consistent with its teaching. What I don't admire is people claiming to be a non-Catholic and then turn around and say, hey, Bobby, you're saved by an imputed righteousness. But you know what proves that imputed righteousness? Your actions. You don't have enough actions. Guess what, Bobby? You were never saved. So get saved. And if you get saved, Bobby, you're still not showing enough action. Get saved. And, and then, but then wait, at least the Catholics have an entire system of mortal and venial and how to define. Here, how do we define it? As long as Bobby is basically just a good old guy, right? He doesn't kill anybody. He's not, like he's just, as long as he's externally moral, we'll say that's good enough. 
which doesn't mean anything because the Pharisees were externally moral. And what did Jesus constantly say about them? Not good enough. He, he, he talked about how great they looked on the outside. Yeah, I know. Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things? No, depart from me. So, but we play, we play weird games where we claim it's imputed. And then the whole thing becomes about what? What we do, what we do, what we do, what we do, what we do. And then we walk around doing what? We grab our glasses and go, okay, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you're saved. I don't know if he's saved. I don't know if he's saved. I don't, like we're somehow God. Like we're the police. And we're saying, we're just, we're just inspecting fruit. Well, go ahead and inspect the fruit. Practically all of our fruit probably will do what? Condemn us. What, what fruit will prove it? The fruit of Christ, which is perfect. And positionally, I have all of it. we got to draw that distinction. And why does this make people so nervous? We, we feel like, well, then people are just going to live any way they want. But, but guess what? All of the attempts to try to keep people from not living the way they want, has any of them worked? You were Church of Christ. What, were their, what was their way of trying to keep you from living the wrong way? Threatening that you lost your salvation. Did it work? No. Catholics, they got an entire system. Anybody been to a Catholic church? Those people sin. Okay? And, the, and Lordship Salvation. And MacArthur's church. <laughs> I won't even go through the news articles that's been released the last couple of years. We've had everything from rape to sexual abuse of children. I mean, some horrific things going down in that church. Well, how come Lordship didn't fix it? Nothing fixes it. You know why nothing fixes it? The imputed doesn't fix it. It just takes care of it in which sense? Legal. Legally it fixes it, but not practically. And we keep running around claiming to everyone, when you become saved, you're a new creature and the old is gone. And every church and every place, I don't care who they are, you may not commit the sins I've committed, but I guarantee you, you got plenty. And I don't know why we, why, why do we hate the imputed righteousness so much? We're afraid of it. We're scared of it. We're scared of it. And, I, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I've said this a lot in the podcast lately. You have never preached the gospel correctly, ever, until you've been accused of being an antinomian. And that's not me saying, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones. And other preachers have said that. that you, and Paul, because Paul's accused basically of an antinomian mindset in Romans. He anticipates that charge. Until you are charged with that, you have not preached the gospel. And I was never accused of being an antinomian until 2022. And then that's the first time I've ever been accused of being an antinomian. And I'm like, what just happened? What just happened? Now, in the past, I was accused of not preaching the gospel. Okay. Even though we would do like a 17-week study on justification. Then I was accused of being an antinomian. I don't know how in the world I became an antinomian. Right? So I, I don't, like, 
Because we just have this weird mindset of what it's supposed to be, and I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand because, uh, and and when I reviewed that podcast from uh, the Gospel Coalition, I mean, they're acting like the greatest threat to the church right now is antinomianism, and that's the biggest joke I've ever heard in my life. If you think antinomianism is a threat to the church, don't listen to me. Just start spend the next month listening to every sermon you can find from every church, locally and not locally. And listen to how many of the sermons end with do this, 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 do this. They all that's every sermon. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Three points to do this, five ways to be a better this, six ways to do that. Every sermon is gives you a list of things to do. That's not antinomianism, people. Antinomianism is not the threat to the church. The threat to the church is we've taken imputed righteousness and turned it into a version of Protestant-infused righteousness where your salvation is dependent upon what you do. And that is horrific, and that is horrible, and, it, and it's very pertinent to today. Because today is Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, who was called Jesus for what reason? To save his people from their sins. Now, first and foremost, that has something to do with Israel, which we won't get into. But let's make sure we all leave this morning knowing this. He did not save you from your sin by making you no longer a sinner in practice. He saved you from your sin by declaring you to be perfect, even though you are still a sinner. He saved you from the guilt of it. He saved you from the condemnation of it by forgiving you because of his sacrifice, by imputing to you his obedience to it. He, Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to live the law. That's why he said the, that nothing from the law would pass away, not one jot or tittle, right? He's referring to what? None of it would pass away until it's all been fulfilled. Remember he says that? Guess what? He fulfilled All of it, for whom? Us. How am I saved from my sin? By his imputed righteousness. It's not good news to tell me I'm saved by an infused righteousness because then it's up to me to somehow produce enough works. And if you say he's the one producing the works, then all Christians should have what kind of works? The system all falls apart. And it should not create controversy and people should not get mad and people should not get upset because all I'm trying to do is like, here's what Roman Catholic Church teaches. Here's what we claim. If what we claim is true, this has to be the end result. If what they're claiming is true, this is the end result. You can't draw a distinction between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and you basically create your own version of a Roman Catholic system and claim that it's not Roman Catholic when it's Roman Catholic in every way, shape, or form. The minute it's no longer about imputed righteousness, it's become Roman Catholic. Because it becomes infused. And I don't care. You can say it's not. No, I don't believe in infused righteousness. You just said my justification will produce sanctification practically. You just, produ- you just taught infused righteousness. Because imputed does not produce what? Practical righteousness. In fact, what would be the point of producing it? I was just declared to be what? Perfectly righteous. <laughs> I don't need the practical, right? Now, I should want the practical, but I don't need the practical 
because the practical can't prove the imputed. Now, I am more than willing to admit that I could be wrong. But here's the thing. If I ever declare that I'm wrong, I'm not going to some evangelical church. I'm going back to Rome. It's Rome or it's a complete strong stance on imputed righteousness. There is no middle of the road. That's kind of what the whole Protestant Reformation was about. All right. But be grateful this morning that you were saved by Jesus from your sin because of an imputed righteousness. All right. That's how we're saved. And somehow we think we're saved because we're going to now be good people. 2,000 years of church history has shown the church is made up of what kind of people? Same kind of people that are where? Everywhere. Everywhere. That's why the church is rarely seen as being that different from the world. We love, we love pleasure. We love the things of the world. We're selfish. We're arrogant. We're condemning. We're gossips. We're slanderers. We're, we're unloving. I mean, all, you, we see it in us all the time. And we just don't like to admit that. Well, what's our, what's our always, how do we get out of that? Well, those people who do that are probably not that's always our go-to, right? That's a, because we are always ready to throw everyone out of the kingdom of God if it makes us feel better. Who, who's the person we never throw out of the kingdom of God? Ourselves. Isn't that, isn't that weird how that works? Kind of just like the Pharisees did. I thank thee, God. I'm not like him. And if you would have looked at those two, who would you have declared to be righteous? The Pharisee. Because he was tithing and he wasn't doing Who was the other one? Publican, tax collector, you would have been like a piece of trash. Greedy, sold out his own people. And who was saved? Ah, isn't that amazing? We would have gotten it wrong. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today, the day that we set aside to remember the birth of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are grateful that you gave him as our gift and we are grateful for a salvation based off of his imputed righteousness. Because Lord, there is not a thing anyone in this room or anyone listening online could ever do. We can't do anything. It's all because of him. And we are grateful for that. And I pray that we would remember that and celebrate that today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said,